0: Amen. Good morning, church. Morning. So many people. I love it. I love seeing you all. So um, last week we gave out these really cool uh, First John, you know, journal Bibles, and I was so excited for them, and we were so amped that everyone came, and then you guys cleared them out. And then for my announcement for the second service, I'm like, so they'll be here next week. And so we had to order a bunch more. So uh, we have those in the back for if you you didn't get one, we'd love for you to grab one. But hopefully we can get some to the second service. So uh, I hope that's a blessing to you as you get to just kind of jump into God's word and study. So um, then I was very encouraged this morning by the time in prayer as we, you know, lift up lots of families with the Brock specifically as we've been praying for them, you know this idea of fellowship, that we are in fellowship, that we're in community, that we we do life together. And when someone's outside of that, we feel that, and that hurts. And so we care for them deeply. If they're watching, if Maria's watching, love you. And I'm just grateful for them and their family. So uh, it's one of those reasons that kind of drew me to this church as I was uh, applying and candidating. This was a part of it. And so I have just seen more and more love from you. So thank you for just being such a loving body of believers. So encouraging to me. Now, We've been in the book of First John, and we've been kind of chugging through it, and as I was praying this week, I thought about some things in my life, and it may not make sense at first, but I swear I'll land the plane. We'll get there. I owned a lot of cars growing up. Still do. Still have a lot of cars. I don't know I don't what it is. I love things with engines, whether that's motorcycles or dirt bikes or, you know, cars or big cars, small cars, four by four. It doesn't really matter. I like things with engines and I just always have. And so I didn't have a lot of money, so I was always kind of like buying and selling and trading and flipping cars as I was growing up. And um, what I've come to find is every car I believe has a soul because it's got a personality. And maybe you had cars like that growing up where you had a car and it was just fickle and it was cold. It didn't want to be your friend, you know, or the heater didn't work or whatever. And I always had all these cars that had all these goofy problems. And I remember I was uh, going to go back to school. And I needed a car. I was trying to get the approval of this guy to give me the hand in marriage of the woman that I was dating. And I went to a trade school, but I needed a new car. And so I had a buddy who had a car sitting on his property in Oroville underneath an oak tree. And he's like, I got this car and I can sell it to you for just a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, I'm desperate. I'm in. What is it? Ford Pinto Wagon. I knew that's when I let go of all the pride in my life, when I was going to take my, 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 my soon-to-be bride on a hot date in the Ford Pinto wagon, which did catch fire on the freeway at one point. But that's another story for another time. But I remember the one thing about this car that really bothered me, that irked me, is the gas gauge didn't work. I got it running, but I could never tell how long it was going to run, and I remember driving this thing around and always being, I just, there was an anxiety, uh, this low-grade anxiety every time I drove around, and I'd look at the gauge and it would never move, and so I started tracking mileage so I could figure out how to, you know, get around, but you know what I found? No matter what the mileage said, no matter what was going on, I found myself At every gas station, every time I drove that car, always topping it off, always topping it off, I just didn't trust it. And I never had that security, I never was able to get rid of that stress in my life of not knowing if I had enough gas to get to where I was trying to go. And you're like, Simon, why are we talking about a Ford Pinto that doesn't have a gas gauge that works? Because I believe this is exactly what John is doing in this section of scripture, That there are men and women in Ephesus and they are living their life like a Ford Pinto with a broken gas gauge. And it's coming down to their belief and their faith and their salvation. And they don't know what to believe, and they don't know what's true, and they're living a life that isn't bringing glory to God because they're stuck in the spot of like, am, am I really safe? Do I need to do something more? Because there are these men in this area that were stirring up false teaching that was causing them to doubt what Jesus had already done on the cross for them. And that's kind of where we find ourselves today in this section of Scripture. And What he doesn't want them to do is to stop being effective in ministry, to stop having the peace that they've been given, to not not doubt the security that they have in Christ and what he's done. And And I believe that as John is thinking of these men and women, that his heart is breaking that they are living in a constant state of anxiety and stress. And his heart breaks and he wants them to know that you can have certainty You can know the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ and that there's actually proofs that show that you are saved in your life. So what I'd love to do today is if you have your Bible, please open up to 1 John chapter two. Maybe you have an electronic device, that's cool. Use your electric one. Do that. If you want to follow along, follow along. And like I said last week, if you're new, it's your first time, we would love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. We go out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, and so it's just easy to follow along if you have that version. That's a gift to you. All we ask is that you read it. Let's read. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that if you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your great love for us. Lord, I ask for my brothers and sisters who do know you that maybe you're struggling with where they are in their walk and questioning their salvation and wondering if there's other things that they need to do that you would bring the assurance that they need to know that they have been saved by the blood of your Son. Lord, as we talk about this, if there are those here today that, that don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that maybe today would be a day where you would open their eyes and open their heart to hear the truth of who you are, that you are the Christ, that you are Messiah, you are the Savior of the world, come to save sinners, that they would come to know you. Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would just work through me this morning, that you would just help me to communicate the truth that you have uh, for these men and women, that there are things that I really shouldn't be saying that are going to be a distraction, just take them away. And let me just be open to being used by you. We love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Now, right off the bat, you can see that John has a love for these people by the way that he writes. Now, he uses the term little children. And you might be like, what a condescending thing to say. But that's not what's going on. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is he's talking about how he has, it's a term of endearment that uh, we don't know if John was married, if he had kids. I, I haven't been able to find that information anywhere. He may have, but we don't know. And so he really viewed the men and women in Ephesus, the people in the church, as his children, and he would act as their father because he loved them. He cared for them. And you see that there's a lot of love behind what he's doing, that He understands that there is affection that flows from that, that being a part of God's family involves being in relationship, being in close proximity, being in intimacy. There's a sense of care and protection that he's trying to communicate as we do life with others. And John immediately kind of like gets right down to it. He says, you know, I don't want you to sin. It's like, I'm writing this letter so that you won't sin. You, don't, you shouldn't be sinning. And like I said last week, it matters how you live. Because what you believe is what you live out. And if you believe something false about God, you will live that out. If you believe something true about God, you will live that out. See, John knows the dangers of sin. And how it breaks intimacy, as we talked about a few weeks back, right? It, it, talking about intimacy, this connectedness with the Father. And and if we don't have that intimacy, sin breaks that intimacy and it keeps us from living a life full of purpose and meaning the way we were designed to be. He's warning them that we must never strive to sin. We shouldn't press into sin. And and he's like, we shouldn't even put ourselves in positions where we might have the temptation to sin. It's so dangerous. It's so horrible for your life. It's the thing that brought us away from God. It's the thing that brought death into the world that it's so bad for you and it wants to destroy you. He gets it. He understands that. And he's warning them. See, when we talk about sin, we're talking about trusting God. We're talking about believing God. And if God is the God that we talked about last week, that God is light, that God is holy, that God is truth, we got to believe that. If we believe that He is holy, perfect, and true, and that all He does is right, why would we then reject that and turn our backs on what He's called us to? And that's what we do every day when we sin. We're not trusting God. We're saying, you know what, God? You're wrong. And I'm right. But then he says this, and and I I love this because I think this is just good for us here. But if we do sin, we talked about this last. We don't have sinless perfection. We don't arrive someday, right? Like, oh, I can do it. I can float around now, and I'm just like, Jesus, I'm perfect in all ways. We know that that's not true. Why? Because we live with ourselves. We know us, don't we? And so he's going to move into this to say like, I'm not foolish enough to believe that we're not going to struggle in this life. We live in a sinful, broken world. Look around, read the paper. We, we know that it's broken. And with that are going to come the temptations that come from the world and a world that says no God and yes to self. We know that there are going to be tests in life as we go through of what, how we will respond. And there are good days, and then there's all those other days, right? And we all have experienced that. And we all know that. And John understands that if this happens, it, it's not hopeless. We don't, if we stumble, if we, if we fall into a place where we know we shouldn't have, it's not the end. Like, well, you get your one shot, you broke it, it's out, you're out. That's not how it works. We don't get thrown out when we sin, but that there is hope and there is a solution. And his name is Jesus, Jesus, the righteous, Jesus, the holy, Jesus, the pure. And it says that he uses the word here. He is our advocate. The term advocate is a legal term. It means a person who acts as a spokesperson or representative of someone else's policy, purpose or cause. That's what it is. And And it really does flow from this idea of a judge in a court. Paul would actually use uh, a different term as he's talking about it in 1 Timothy 2.5. He would say this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And a mediator is, again, kind of a very similar idea. A negotiator who acts as a link between parties. So you see what's going on here is that we have this man named Jesus, and he's going to use these legal terms because this is how God views our sin and where we are. It's a legal term. He is a just God who deals with rebellion against his perfect and holy and just ways and what we see is ultimately this. God is a perfect judge that he is going to judge sin. That He can The Bible tells us he cannot allow sin to remain in his presence without judging it. The same way that we would be angry, we would probably be furious if a judge decided just to go ah You seem like a good guy, let him go. And the guy's totally guilty. No, we'd say, no, we want justice. That person should not be allowed to commit that crime, to do those things. God is a perfect judge, and he cannot allow that to go unjudged. And what we find as he is being perfect and holy, that we find ourselves in contrast to who he is and his ways. That we need someone to speak for us. We need a spokesman We we need someone who can be a negotiator between the two parties, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is the one that steps in, and he is the one that can represent us. He's the one that can link us back to God. He is the one that can speak on our behalf. He is the one that understands the perfect law because he is perfect, so he understands God and who he is, but he also understands being a human because he lived a human life. This is why we said last week it was so important that he is fully God and fully Man, he had to be both to be the mediator, to be the advocate that we needed. So he steps into that. And it's, it's great because it then says that um, he was righteous. That this righteousness becomes important. If he wasn't righteous, he couldn't stand in the place of God. He could not go before God because there would be fear of his wrath, fear of his punishment. But because he is perfect, he can assume that position. Like, Jesus wasn't just a man, but he was God. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was God. That's important for us to understand. He's going to build off this in verse 2. And he says, he is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, The church loves to use big words to confuse us, to sound really smart. And I I would sit here and i go, you're using words I have no idea what you're saying. Propitiation is a weird word. It's like, when's the last time you used that word in a normal conversation like at Starbucks? Like, we just don't. Like, it's a word like we don't know. But if we don't talk about the words and define the words, it can be hard to understand what God really wants us to understand about him. It says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It means this. Propitiation is the means by appeasing wrath And gaining the goodwill of an offended person. Especially with respect to sacrifices or appeasing angry deities. That's really how that word is broken down. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the word uh, propitiation and I want to kind of look at the definition a little bit so we can understand what happened on the cross if, if with Jesus, if he is our propitiation, if Jesus is our propitiation for our sins, we probably need to know what that means and how that plays out in our life. If we don't understand that, it's going to be hard to understand what he did on the cross for us. So, we talk about it here all the time. People, you know, it, no one likes to talk about sin. Sin's not fun to talk about, right? But it's a reality. See, sin warrants God's wrath. It warrants His punishment because He is perfect and holy and cannot sin. He, like I said, He can't allow sin to remain in His presence. We know what sin warrants. We know what that gets us. We can go back to the garden, and as soon as He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, that that is part of the consequence of sin in the world. That is part of the consequence of rejecting God's truth and accepting what we think is right. And so we see in Romans six twenty three it says, for the wages of sin is death. So we know that this is what it equals when we rebel against a king and he's like, these ways are right. There is going to be a punishment. That is the punishment. It will be God's wrath poured out on that sin. Okay. So as we talk about it, we look at the word that we. So we, without Jesus, are enemies of God, the Bible would say. That we have waged war against God, that we are in rebellion to him, that we have rejected his ways, that we have pursued our own ways, and that we think that we're right. See, we weren't in a good spot with God. We didn't even have the ability to go to God because we were enemies. But what we see is that Jesus comes and then steps into that place, Why? It tells us so that we would have the goodwill of the Father. See, he's changing our position. He's changing our relationship with him. Instead of being enemies of God, we can now have goodwill with God and be in relation. Instead of being separated, we're now connected to him. Instead of receiving his wrath, we're now receiving his goodwill. And what happened in this position is that Jesus then became a substitution. He took our place. So what we deserved for being in rebellion, and again, we'd already talked about Jesus was perfect. So was it his sin that put him on the cross? No, he had no sin. So he went in our place. He took our spot, what we earned, what we deserved, He actually said, I will take that and place that upon myself past, present, future sins. And then he goes to the cross and he dies. And so here's what I love about what happened on the cross. God must punish sin. Did God just say, ah, don't worry about it. I love you. All's good. Welcome on in. No, he didn't. He didn't brush his wrath aside. As a matter of fact, he poured his full wrath out on his son. He never compromised who he is. He never turned a blind eye to sin, but he poured it out on Jesus. And you say, well, that seems mean. If that's all it was, then yeah, but it wasn't. It was for you. It was for me. It was for all that would call in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see that he loves us so much that he created a way that we would not have to be separate from him? And it says that, you know, there's an offended party in this, right? Who's the offended party? God's the offended party. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross turned God's wrath into favor. But then John kind of goes a little bit farther because as a Jewish person of that day and that age, you think, oh yeah, for us, for the Jewish people. God sent Jesus to die for the Jewish people. He's like, and not just for you. He'd say for the whole world. And what I'm not saying is every person. I'm saying every nation. When he talks about the word, he's talking about the the entire nation. It's not just boiled down to this one group of people, the Jewish people. But it's now available for the entire world, for anyone who would call on his name. And I'm not talking about universalism where, hey, he died on the cross and you can believe whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. You're in. That's not what I'm talking about. Because the Bible tells us that that's not how it works. It's for those that have placed their life in the life of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross that they would have life, meaning that if they trust in Jesus' work for salvation and not their own. We see that in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, right? So if you have to believe in who he is, so what you believe kind of matters, doesn't it? We see that over and over again in the Bible. And then verse 3 is going to lead to 3 through 5 is going to jump into the question that we kind of posed earlier. How can I know that I have salvation? How can I know that my salvation is secure? How can I know that I don't lose my salvation? And it says this. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know... That we are in Him. So, the idea of, to know God. We've talked a little bit about this, and I, I'm just going to kind of keep hammering it until we get it. Like, I can, we can know facts about things. Like, I can tell you, my wife's hair is brown. My wife's eyes are brown. She's five foot tall. Like, ha, huh, I know Annette now. No, you don't. Like, that's just... Things about her, but to know her, to know how she thinks, to know how she responds, to know what she likes, to know what she hates, that has come over 20 plus years of doing life with my wife Annette. So I know how she's gonna respond when a situation comes up. I know what she's going to love. I know what she's going to hate. I know what to buy her for different things. She's like, oh, buy her flowers for, for Valentine's Day. She would say, don't buy me flowers because they die. I'd rather have a card and a poem and something that will last forever. I'm like, oh, can I just buy flowers? <laughs> no, I cannot. But we're talking about something that's different. We're talking about this word, to know him, is an experiential term. It means to experience him. To be in relationship with Him, to be connected to Him. See, the, the, the closest I get to that kind of deep, rich intimacy is the marriage that I have with my wife. That I see, there's something about that that's that's I, I go okay, so that's what you're talking about. And it revolves around these two things, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of press into it around His commands and keeping His words. It's like well. Okay, so now we're talking about works-based faith. Now we're talking about legalism. Now We're we're just getting into the thing with the Pharisees, right? What does that mean? Well, that's not what we're talking about. That we trust. We trust Him. We trust what He says. We trust what He says instead of what we say. We trust what He thinks versus what we think. We trust what he wants versus what we want. And we trust what he believes versus what we believe. It's this idea that we would have a love for his truth. And this is what I see in the church. All right, I'll do what you say, God. Fine, I'll do it, I'll tithe. Have you ever seen that? Am I the only one who's noticed that? Like, I'll begrudgingly submit to you because I have to because you're the lightning bolt God. But what we're talking about is that we're not shuffling our feet and neandering to God, but we are running towards Him that we are running at full pace because we know that he is the God of life. He is the one that gives life. And why would I ever want anything that leads to death? Why would I ever want anything that takes me away from him? If this is going to hinder that relationship, if he is true, if he is right, he is holy, I want to run towards him with all of my life, all the time. That's what we're talking about, running towards God and everything that he says, that we're moving towards him, not away from him that we see that he is the giver of life and that only life is within him. And if we are not in him, that it is harmful, destructive, and it leads to death. And then he would say that to have the truth in us. In John 14, 6, he would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when he says, is is the truth in you? What is he saying? If Christ is in you, if you've placed your life in the life of Christ, it's a profession of faith in Jesus. If you proclaim Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, as the only way for salvation, you'll be keeping his word. That you'll be believing him. And and I love this idea that the salvation in, it's in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's really what we're getting at. It's not found in other things. Uh, we were in uh, the book of Acts just recently. And in chapter 4, 12, it said this, "...and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." That's not complicated. I'm not a smart guy, but I can read basic English and understand that there, there is only one way. That is the only way. He, so I'm going to tell you all these things I'm not good at. Apparently, this morning I just realized I keep doing this. I'm not good at math, and I'm okay with that. But I know a couple of equations, and I've got Bible math that I'd love to teach you today. Jesus plus anything equals heresy there's your equation. Keep that in your back pocket. Use it whenever you want. It's not hard to understand, but this is the problem that John was dealing with, wasn't he? It was like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, you know, and he died, but you need to know this, but you need to do that, but you need to ascend to this. Jesus plus good works is heresy. Jesus plus church attendance is heresy Jesus plus tithing is heresy Jesus plus anything is heresy. We have to understand that we we don't need anything. When when Jesus is on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. He was like, it's close. So do some good stuff. That's not what he said, is it? It's finished. It's been completed. He absorbed the wrath of God. Everything was paid for. There is nothing else that needs to be done. He did all the work. You don't need to add to the cross for salvation. And that's exactly what John is hammering home here, that you would have assurance that you would be encouraged that you don't need to add to this. And verse 5, I think, helps us understand this a little bit more. And, and we're going to get to commandments. We're going to get to the word again. We're not, I, I didn't, I'm not trying to get over that. It says this in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. All right. What's he saying? Again, we, we're not talking about sinless perfection. We already talked about that. It's that we're going to start to look More and more like Jesus. Because Jesus is perfect. And Jesus is the perfect picture of God's perfect love. And so, Our lives, as we experience God, as we engage God, we will start to look more like a son. If Jesus was the perfect example of what it meant to follow God perfectly, to submit to everything that he asked him to do, we will ultimately start to look like Christ in how we live, in what we do, in what we say, in how we think, how we engage our neighbors, how we engage our friends, anybody, you will start to look like him. Being close to God, experiencing him will always do one of two things. It will either harden your heart or it will soften your heart. I just, I just don't see a lot of middle ground there because God's word says hard things at times. It presses into the areas that we don't want to talk about. And so you either have to accept it and believe it or reject it and go figure out something else. What John is saying, he wants to remind us: when we truly experience Him, we're going to look different. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I have talked with Christians over the years, and it's always interesting. So they'll usually it's I've committed this sin, or I've done this thing, or I've rejected what God has said, and and there's always this. Man, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't even know if I have salvation. I don't even know if God still loves me, and I. And I try not to chuckle because if you know good theology, it's like, well, you wouldn't even be thinking that if the Holy Spirit wasn't convicting your heart. Like that wouldn't even be a thought in your mind because he is the one that transforms hearts. He's the one that draws people towards him. And so what you see is like the fact that you're asking that and you're concerned about salvation is evidence of the fact that God loves you and that you know that there's a brokenness in the intimacy that you have with him. And I tell him, like, the fact that you're asking that shows that the Holy Spirit's convicting you because you know there's something off in your relationship. It's the active presence of him in your life pursuing you, telling you there is a thing that you're engaged in that is harmful to you, and I love you enough to call you out. Let me, let me paint a picture for you. I like pictures. Pictures help me. Um... It's kind of like a house. A house has kind of three parts to it. And you're like, well, technically, just work with me here. You got the foundation, right? We got that. We got the body of the house. And then you got the roof. Most houses all have that. At some level, they all kind of have those three things. Now, if we look at this from what we're talking about, the foundation that we're talking about is faith alone in Jesus for salvation. Based on his works, not ours. Based on the cross, nothing that we've done, not helping Jesus. It's about having a foundation that is set on Christ. The body of the house, the walls, and the structure, and the piping, and all the electricity, and the studs, and all that stuff, all of that is our life, and how we live our life, and how we have built our life, and what we've built our life upon, and what we've built it on, what we believe the foundation to be. And it's the good works that then flow from that. And the roof of the house is security that we have knowing that we're saved. You know, we talk about a solid foundation. We are talking about the very thing that is like, this was what decides if your house will stand or fall. When we talk about a roof, we always talk about if you do any kind of camping or any kind of survival study and things like that. If you watch any survival shows, it's all about getting a shelter and a roof over your head, something over your head to protect you from the elements, to protect you from the danger, from the wind, from the rain, from the sun, from whatever it may be. That's the assurance that we have. Now, it would be weird if I was to be like, I'm going to start with all the framing And then I'm going to put a roof on it, and then I'll lay a foundation on top. That'd be weird, and the house would fall over. And if it's on something other than Jesus and his work alone, then we're building it on something that will not be able to withstand when difficulty comes, when problems come, when you do sin, when you do stumble, when you do fail. You will not be able to do that. And it says all other ground is sinking See, we know these terms, we've heard these terms. If it's not built on Jesus and Jesus alone, we don't have a solid foundation. We're not not trying to do all these good works to get God to love us. He already has loved us, and so now we can live out of that. And as we live in these good works, as we start to see us trusting God, believing God, following God, there is the evidence of, and that creates the assurance of our salvation is a roof. It can't be based on anything else. It has to be in a certain order. You know, it's hard to see our growth in our life at times, isn't it? It's hard to know how we've been growing. I have kids and they're all, most of them are almost taller than me now. So it's like, hey guys. Um, but our kids... They don't see as they get taller. They don't see as they grow older, but I see it. I have a different perspective. I can see them. I've, I've watched them grow up. I, I remember when you know, I could pick them up, and now I'm like, can you pick me up? Like, it's a, it's a very different world that we live in now. But I've watched that, and I can say, oh, I remember this last week. I'm like, oh, dude, you've totally grown. He's like, have I? Because we can't tell... When we look at, like, we're, we're in the thick of it. We need others at times to tell us about the growth in our life and the areas where we've kind of changed and look different. I was talking with my friend this week. And uh, my friend Tim, he, he's a pastor, and I've, I've known him for a while now. And he was kind of walking with me as my dad was passing uh, uh, about a year, a year and some change ago. And we were just talking about salvation and where he was. And unfortunately, he was very unresponsive. So we couldn't have a lot of the conversations that we wanted to have. And he was, we were talking and it kind of came down this idea of like salvation. And is he saved, and it came down to the trajectory. uh, It's really what we kind of landed in this area. And angles are weird. I'm not a mathematician. So if I get this wrong, you can write me a letter and chastise me later. It's cool. But angles... You can be moving up at different angles, right? So we've got like 90 degrees, right? So, you know, there's our 90 degree. Now, we like it when it goes straight up. And sometimes we get 45 degrees and it's kind of going that direction. All of our stocks should be going that direction, but now maybe they're going this direction. We want them to go this direction, right? And then sometimes our angles are really low. They're, they look like they could be zero, but they're not. And sometimes they're, they're just, just a, a fraction above, but there's upward trajectory. See, where there's problems if we aren't going up at all, or the angles are going down, we want to be moving up towards God, not down and away from Him. And it's funny, so my friend was in sharing about his grandfather, and when he, when he was getting close to the end of his life, and, and he gave his life to Jesus well late into his life, and uh, The thing that he said about his grandpa, which really stood out to me, he said, my grandfather was the biggest racist I've ever met in my entire life. And and I know a lot of people. He was just the worst. He was so, the things that he would say were just foul and horrible and just unloving and had nothing to do with God's love whatsoever. He says, and then he came to Jesus and we all celebrated." I'm like, that's great. And you know what happened? I'm like, what? He's all, he was less of a racist. (laughs) Here's the thing. When we have been walking with Jesus a long time, we tend to want people to instantly get to where we are, don't we? And if they're not there, we think that they must not be saved. They must not be in a place where they've been growing. But I look at my life and I'm like, I have been growing. all So anything you see here, you're like, that's not great. This is so much better than it was. Like, it could be so much worse. You're like, wow, that worse? That worse. But the point is this, is that he had started a trajectory where he started to reflect and show the love of Jesus in his life. It may not have been what we would have hoped for, but he was moving in that direction. And so he started to think differently. He started to act differently. And he started to speak differently. As I looked at my dad's life when he came to a place where he gave his life to Jesus, he started to talk differently. He then didn't get angry when I shared the gospel, but he agreed with the gospel. See, there's a trajectory in our lives that we're all going down. We start to ask questions about what is our trajectory? Like, what what are we doing with our lives? What does that look like? The point is, are you moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? And it's, it's okay to ask diagnostic questions about our lives and where we are with that salvation. That's a good thing to do. We should all be asking questions like that all the time. Because it really is like, okay, is this happening in my life? You know, one of the things I would say is, if you're wondering about your trajectory, uh, there's uh, ask your friends, ask your spouse, ask your family. They're not going to hold back. Like, am I? Do you see more of Jesus? No. Wait, really? You're supposed to say yes. <laughs> we need people. To speak into our lives that we have seen this growth, that we can see the assurance of our faith. Because here's the thing, remember this. And you're like, but it's all about, you're talking about works, you're talking about works, you're talking about works. No, I'm not talking about doing all these things for salvation. Obedience is the evidence of our salvation. Trusting God is the, it's the evidence of our salvation. It is not the reason or the cause of our salvation. See, it's not about our work; it's about his work. We are just believing him, trusting him, and walking in him new every day. That's why John ends in that way with verse six. Whoever says we abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Like, we're trusting God. Like, I think that Jesus gives us this great example in Philippians 2, eight. He says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was the son of God. He was perfect. He wasn't doing all those things to earn God. He was already in God's favor. He trusted God's plan. He even said at one point, God, there's another way. Like this whole like hanging on a cross thing sounds really horrible. I don't think I want to do it. Then he said what? But not my will, yours. He knew the plan and was willing to give up his life so we could have life. Ever wonder why all in history books, all the the Christians of the early church and on were martyred and would go and they would die? They were willing to like just recant and you can live. And they'd say no. Because they believed it. And they were obedient to trusting God no matter what. And maybe you need to ask some questions this morning. Maybe you need to ask, what differences have you seen in your life since coming to Jesus, if you have? Maybe you need to ask some friends, some family, some loved ones. Like, hey, are you seeing differences in my life? You know, have, have you placed your life in the life of Jesus? Or have you placed it in something else? And if, if you've never come to that point where you've made a profession of faith to Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you, man, please come talk to me. After. I would love to talk with you more about Jesus. You can talk to any of the... Any of the pastors, any of the elders of Mark would love... all. We'd love to talk with you about a relationship with Jesus if you're not sure what that means and what that looks like. Are you, have you been building your house upside down? Have you been trying to build the body first and then trying to stack everything else on top of it? Are you built it on a weird foundation that you shouldn't have? What trajectory are you going in your life? You're like, well, I just... I'm feeling so convicted, Simon. It must be that that God is angry. No, conviction is not condemnation. It's the active work of God pursuing you because he loves you. Now, I promised you I would wrap up with the story that I started with. Our lives are like this Ford Pinto, and I think that that actually is the appropriate version of our lives. (laughs) the bible would say that we are uh, broken vessels that's a that's a ford pento right a broken vessel jesus and the gas in the tank he's the gas in our tank but what we do at times is we allow the world and the culture to be the gas gauge and we don't believe and we don't we can't believe that we have gas and we start believing this broken gas gauge in our life and Jesus is saying, you know what's the best part about me? He, he would use the term uh, living water to a woman that would never have to go back to the well and get more water. Everlasting water. Jesus is our everlasting fuel supply in our car of life. That we don't have to go to the get. We don't have to stop and doubt in life. But we can know. Because every time we stop and doubt. You ever go on a road trip? What happens? Dad never wants to stop. Why? Not making good time. Gotta make good time. Every time I stop, it adds another hour to the trip. Every time we stop in life when we doubt our salvation, it keeps us from being effective in where we're trying to go. Effective in taking the gospel forward. When we doubt the peace that we have with God, how can we share the peace that we have with others? The enemy wants us to believe the lies that are being thrown at us, that your gas is getting empty, that it's not enough, and it's going to cause you to stop. We don't need the gas gauge anymore because we know that we have Christ and he is sufficient. And there is assurance and faith if you've placed your faith in him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would just bring encouragement to the men and women that are here today. If they know you, if they love you, if they place their faith in you and you alone, that they would not be in a place where they doubt That we know that there's going to be times where sin is going to show its head and that we're going to have to repent of that sin. As it said last week, that we need to confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and that you are calling us to trust you, to turn from sin and to turn to you and to run towards you. And as we look at these areas in our life, do we believe? What areas are we not believing in your commandments? What areas are we not believing in what your word says? and let us use that as a gauge and where we are submitting and following and believing you, that we would understand that you are showing us that we are on a trajectory moving more and more towards you. Let us be a church that encourages each other, that as we see brothers and sisters that we've walked with for days, months, weeks, years, decades, that we could point to how good you are as we're all becoming image-bearers of the Savior in everything that we do. We're not going to do it perfect, which is why we keep clinging to you and we need the Holy Spirit so desperately. But there will be a day when you will give us our glorified bodies and we will be perfect again the way we were designed to be. Give us the endurance to press into that. Let us not believe the lies of the culture saying that we need something else know that you are sufficient and good. And when you said, it is finished, it was finished and you have purchased our salvation. We pray these things in your glorious and amazing name, amen.